0: So my name is Alex Schlegel, and uh, I guess the, the way that you came to me is through my work in cognitive neuroscience. So that's my, my training background is in cognitive neuroscience, which is, you know, if you want to describe it in a sentence, it's trying to understand how the structure and function of the brain creates the, the mind and the, the consciousness we experience and everything that makes us human-like imagination. So you have, uh, it's a oh, go ahead.
1: Sorry. So, so you, so you just published, uh, or recently published a paper about the idea of the mental workspace, uh, right. a widespread network of, of of brain areas that activate when we are in a in an imaginative <clears throat> state. Could you tell us a bit about that?
0: About the the brain areas. About the, about the mental workspace. workspace? Okay, sure. So, it's uh this the mental workspace is not a concept we came up with but it's in my view it's it's a topic that is pretty neglected in the field considering how major a role it plays in what it is to be human uh, you know my my view is that this is one of the main things that distinguishes human cognition from other, any other animal cognition is that we have this very rich mental space that we can work in so it's uh, you know, internal models that we can plan in, uh, do experiments and test in that, that we don't have to have a physical counterpart to. So that opens up uh, an amazing range of new abilities that other animals aren't going to have that, that don't have the ability to turn into that inner space and, uh, and focus on it and manipulate it rather than manipulating real things with their hands. And um, so yeah, so I think it, I think it's perfectly fine to think of it as synonymous with imagination. Uh, all of these terms are kind of loose and not very well grounded in in anything physical. So um, yeah, so that's my that was my motivation is trying to understand a little bit about how it is that the brain, the human brain especially, creates this mental workspace, um, a, a very closely related ideas that maybe is more traditionally used in the field as working memory. So working memory is, is a very, um, popular topic or very interesting topic in neuroscience, trying to understand the neural basis of working memory, which in a way, in some ways is very similar to these ideas of imagination or mental workspace. It's the ability to hold, um, representations or images or sounds, Online temporarily for for working with, but I think the in practice the the place where it doesn't really get to the questions that I'm interested in is working memory is usually or almost exclusively thought of as a, a static kind of temporary memory. So if I want to remember somebody's phone number or uh, remember a face or something like that, I can I can hold it there. But this idea of actively manipulating those representations isn't really treated. So that's really the thing that we were most interested in getting at is, and it's, it's, um, I think one of these cases that since we do it so easily, we don't really think about it, but this is actually an, a, an astounding ability that we have to, with almost, it seems, limitless possibility to. Manipulate these representations into things we've possibly never seen before, or to discover new things that actually have exist out in the world just by, you know, using this amazing modeler that we have in our mind.
1: So um, the yeah, so, that, so the the key sort of insight from f- from the research was that it, it's not that it just comes from one place, but it's the whole network that fires simultaneously that connects up all those different uh, parts. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's one of the key insights. This this is um, maybe just kind of a, a product of the historical moment we're in with neuro- cognitive neuroscience researching that most of neuroscience research, I think, would say even now, is still focused on finding where is the neural correlate of some function, where does language happen, where does vision happen, where does memory happen, those kinds of things, and. Um, it was very easy to ask those questions when fMRI came around because we could, you know, stick somebody in a scanner and have them do one task and do a control task and then do the real task and see where what part of the brain lights up in one case rather than the other. And, you know, those those very well controlled, reductionist kinds of um, paradigms find these very clean blobs where something happens in one case versus the other. So there's yeah this I think it it led a lot to the story of, you know, one place in the brain for every function and we just have to map out those places. Um, But in in, in reality, the brain is a complex system. It works in a real world, which is a complex environment. And in any kind of real behavior that we engage in, the entire brain is going to be involved in one way or the other. Uh, and especially when you start to get into these more complex abilities that are very hard to kind of, you know, reduce to the, this highly controlled A versus B kind of thing. The, when you, to really understand the behavior itself, like imagination. Yeah. I think it's not that surprising that it's going to be a complex multi-network kind of mm. phenomenon. And, and so I think we're, why we were able to show that is the maybe primarily because the techniques are advancing in the field and we're starting to figure out how to look at these behaviors in a more realistic way. Mm-hmm. One of the, I would say, big limitations of cognitive neuroscience research right now, because of fMRI and because of the techniques we've had, is that we tend to think of a behavior as um, like activating. Or not activating the brain. You know, when we're when we're doing analyses of brain activity, we're looking for areas that become more active than than another. This is changing a lot in the last few years, but that at least you know for the first 15 20 years that was the kind of, kind of one of the only ways we would look at brain activity. And so it it, it kind of simplistically thinks of the brain as you know some other organ where it's either you know uh, like buzzing or it's not buzzing, it's buzzing or it's not buzzing, you know, it buzzes, the language happens, but really the brain is a complex computational system, it's doing complex computations and information processing, um, and that's not something that you're really going to see if you're just looking for, in a large area, increased versus decreased activity. So when we start to be able to look at the brain more in terms of the information that it's processing and where we can see information, how we can see communication between different areas, then you start to see you can start to look at things like imagination, uh, mental workspace in in uh, a more complex light.
1: So so how does how does that idea sit alongside the ideas, firstly of the of the default network? which is often linked to creativity and imagination as well, mm-hmm. and also to the idea that the hippocampus is this area that is essential to uh, a healthy uh, functioning imagination. Do those, right. okay. ideas, do those three ideas all just fit seamlessly together or are they heading off in different directions?
0: Uh, I can give you my opinion that's not very well-founded in uh, in any kind of data, but it's something that we've talked about a lot in in the lab and. I have a suspicion that actually we had been thinking about how to test for a while. Uh, yeah, so what the default mode network was first seen as this network that would become more active in between tasks. So, you know, when we're doing an fMRI experiment, what we'll usually do is you'll have some period where you're doing the task, and then there's a period where you're just resting. So you can get the, the baseline brain activity when you're not doing anything. And this was a surprising result: is that actually during rest periods, other some areas of the brain become more active. And you know, oh wow, it's a surprise. The the person's not just sitting there blankly doing nothing. The brain doesn't just totally deactivate. They're doing other stuff during those blank periods where there's no stimulus on the screen. Um, and you know, from my personal experience, what you do in those uh, those experience those rest periods is you daydream your mind wanders. you think about what you're going to do afterwards or stuff that's happened during the day. Uh, and there's a lot of research since then that's backed that up that it seems to be this kind of network that's highly involved in daydreaming, like behavior, or social imagination, those kinds of things. Uh, so my view, my, my opinion or my suspicion is that this is, this is a, I think, illustrating, how our term imagination really encompasses a lot of different things. And when you try to lump it under this one term, this one mega term, you're going to be missing out on a lot of the complexity or subtlety. So what what I would suspect is going on is that there are um, there's this more like daydreaming mode of control over your inner space where you're not really, you know, consciously, volitionally directing yourself to, um have certain experiences. There's some other this default control network that's more taking over the the daydreaming. Like, you know, I don't when I daydream I'm not trying to think about anything. It's just letting the thoughts come. But that's not the only that's not what imagination is that's maybe part of what imagination is, but a very important part of imagination is is you trying to imagine things. Try you know, direct yourself, you know, well, what is the relationship between these two things, or how can I build community, or something like that, and in that case, you're you're taking active volitional control over these systems. Um, so that would be my suspicion is what's going on, or how our, like, our, the results we found would differ from default home network, is that in our study, we, we were telling people, you know, we would show them some stimulus, and we would say, rotate this 90 degrees clockwise, so they had this... Fairly difficult task they had to do. It was effortful, and this more frontal parietal network probably took over. Then, and you see that a lot in other studies. You know, a frontal, frontal parietal. I think they sometimes call it like an executive attention network that um, directs when you're when you're consciously trying to engage in some task. That takes over, and then if you're not doing anything, the default mode network takes over.
1: So they're both different kind of, different manifestations of the imagination, a sort of an active and a more uh, passive, less conscious version. They're both two versions of the same thing, in a sense. Yeah, I would I,
0: would, I would think that, that it fits well with what I've seen. And another point about this executive attention network is that um, people use, like, I think, a sim- simple way of describing these two, there have been studies that show that they're, in some ways, antagonistic or um, kind of mutual inhibiting the Devolmote
1: network and this executive attention network. Yeah, it's like oil and water. It's one or the other. Or yin yeah. And read
0: some right, yeah. So, But a, a simple way of describing these that people often resort to is that the executive attention network is is, um, is designed for attention to the outside world. And the default mode network is attention to the inner space. And I think where I, would, where I would disagree with that or suggest that that's not the case is that I would, I think, I, I think a, a better way to classify it would be that executive attention is more of this volitionally driven attention, which you, is usually associated with attention to the outside world. And default mode network is more – I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it's more of this daydreaming network. But the point is that, this, you know, your executive volitional attention can be driven to the inner space just as much as it can be driven to the outside world.
1: And the hippocampus?
0: Hippocampus, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, we we did see that it became more active, um, I believe, I'm trying to remember back, when people were doing the tasks that, that you know, these mental manipulation tasks but we didn't find that it <clears throat> the processing contained information about what kinds of tasks the person was doing. Uh, now, it's important to not draw too many conclusions from that, and this is something I think that we constantly struggle with, is just because we didn't find it being involved in the task does not mean it isn't. It's, it's probably much more likely an indication that our tools are very poor for looking at these things and it was probably involved in a way that we just were not sensitive to given our, you know, tools and analysis techniques. Um, but yeah, I, de- I definitely, I don't think I am qualified to like give a comprehensive answer of what the hippocampus is involved with in humans and how it would be um, involved in these kinds of tasks. But Yeah, I guess I, I, I'm I not sure. I what I, I guess what I would be willing to say is that the hippocampus may be involved, but I, I would suspect it's definitely not like the only thing or the, the major thing. It, it may be what other studies have focused on and found relationships with, but I think it's more important to, to think of, you know, more of this complex dynamic network view of what's going on. If you really want to get closer to uh, understanding how imagination is created in the brain. Mm.
1: And with this um, mental workspace network, how, um, well, I guess the first question is, yeah. So the, is that the same network that would, that would be activated if you were thinking about the future? Because one of the things that, that that I'm interested in is the whole thing of what, where, what happened to the future. You know, we used to be talking about the future all the time and writing about the future all the time. And it feels like, you know, we've seen in the last few years this kind of retreat into kind of nostalgia and what people call retrotopia, that idea, you know, make America great again and kind of going backwards. And this sort of the future seems to become a very complex and kind of scary place. So people rather kind of go backwards. And what we try and do in transition is really to create those spaces where people come together and imagine the future in a sort of hopeful, what could it be? We could create something fantastic. How would that be? Is this the same kind of network that would be firing in people as when they're they're thinking about the future and trying to be imaginative about how the future could be? Yeah, I would would
0: think so. um, I think an important difference... Or an important additional part that you might start to see if you're thinking about imagining the future is, is um, I would guess that practically most of the time when you're imagining the future, you're thinking about people and social groups and how to navigate those kinds of dynamics. And so I would I would guess that then you would get added into the mix all the the social processing networks that we have, and that's actually another thing that we had were thinking about how to um how to look at is that yeah practically a, a big chunk of human cognition is spent thinking about your relationship with other people and how to navigate that and uh, and I think there's a good argument to be made that that kind of complex processing space is was one of the main drivers of us becoming who we are because social social uh, social cognition is some of the most complex cognition we do We're trying to Imagine what somebody's thinking by looking at their facial expression, or mm. imagine, you know, how do I resolve a conflict between these two people who are fighting, and things like that. And, um, we definitely we do have very specialized regions and networks in the brain that have evolved to do that kind of processing. Uh, so yeah, it's a very interesting question that how would these, how are these, uh, other mental workspace areas that at least that we looked at that had nothing to do with it, you know, it was like here's this abstract shape what does it look like if you flip it horizontally and things like that how would they interact with these socially evolved areas Um, it's a very interesting question I think, uh, I don't know if you've seen this paper but there's a a famous paper that it's called I believe it's called um, Imagining the Future Versus Remembering the Past have you heard of this? No. Let me see if I can find it. Well, remembering the past and imagining imagining the future. So this was a, I'm sure actually I would guess that this probably had looked at found kind of something with hippocampus as well. It was a study that that compared they had they you know like we always do they stuck somebody in a scanner and they had they compared these two different things one was imagining events that had happened. I don't know, earlier in their day or earlier in their life somehow versus imagining some future event that hadn't happened yet and they were just trying to compare the brain activity between those two cases and see if, is it the same kind of brain activity, is it different because I think um, um, introspectively they, it seems like there's a lot of overlap between them, at least the experience I have. When I'm imagining, you know, what I did yesterday mm. seems very similar to if I'm just imagining some hypothetical event that might happen today when I go to work.
1: And there's, the, and there's um, the interesting, there's the interesting thing I think as well about how it's really easy to remember really clearly last week, but to remember 20 years ago is really difficult. And in the same yeah. way, and in the same way, to imagine next week is really easy, but to like when we try and when we do work with communities, which is about. Okay, let's imagine what this place could be like in twenty years. It gets really, really fuzzy. Right.
0: right. Yeah. <laughs> feel,
1: yeah. That's it a it good feels point. like it's the same muscle you're kind of working. <laughs> with. You know, memory and imagination is very. There's a lot of similar stuff going on there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, bet, I would guess actually that there's, there's a, a reason for that in the, mm. in in that, I would guess that this kind of imagination, especially if we're trying to imagine something in the near future. Is, is drawing heavily on memories that we have, recent memories that we have, and recombining them. And that's that's probably the place where the hippocampus would be playing a, a major role. And actually, just looking at the figures they have, they, they definitely did find hippocampal involvement in here. Okay. Anyway, I don't, I don't remember what the all the points of the paper was, but one of them was that they do have both common and distinct substrates, um...
1: So they found some areas it. where
0: the activity overlapped, and some areas where there was activity in one active in one condition, but not the other, vice versa. Could,
1: could you send me a link to that? That would be great.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay. you.
1: And so, so do you? So there, there's a lot of the research that I've been looking at about about how when people are in states of trauma, or when people grow up in states of fear. That the hippocampus visibly shrinks, and that cells are kind of burnt out in the hippocampus, and that people become less able to imagine the future. Uh, people get kind of stuck in kind of in the present, and it's one of the one of the kind of indicators, particularly with post traumatic stress, is that inability to look forward, uh, and inability to imagine the future. What, do you have any knowledge of or any speculation about what happens to the mental workspace? when people are in states of trauma or when people are in states of fear?
0: Uh, definitely no data, uh, only speculation. But, yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, as with anything real and interesting involving humans, it's going to be incredibly complex. So it's mm. it would be very difficult and maybe impossible to distill it down to simple, understandable things that are happening in the brain. But what I would guess is that yeah, in people that are in stressful situations and experiencing trauma, you tend to focus, like you were hinting at, you tend to focus on the present. What's there immediately? You know, how do I survive this day? And you don't tend to think much about planning for the future. Um, um, you know, synthesizing everything that's happened to you in the past into plans for the moments. You just react in the moment because you don't know what the next moments are going to be like. Or mm. It's its you know, more cognitive load that you can deal with because of all the stress you have. So I would guess that, for one, you're not really um, synthesizing or processing your experiences as something brought to bear on decisions for the future as much. And you're not, I don't know, you know if you want to use the metaphor, you're not exercising those muscles of planning far into the future. So... Just like any other muscle in the body, if you don't if you don't practice skills or you don't practice, you know, you don't use various parts of your brain, they're they're going to atrophy. They're they're not going to develop in a way that they would if you did use them. So, in that sense, it seems perfectly understandable and um, not that surprising that yet yeah, these areas. These areas or these networks that we found associated with these kinds of activities of projecting oneself in the future or imagining things that don't exist. If in, pe- in people for whatever reason that are doing that kind of thing regularly in their lives, they're not going to be developed as much as they would from people who are happy and healthy and imaginative. And the the
1: the, the research that I mentioned before the 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 creativity crisis. Uh, research where she suggests that we've seen this decline since 1990 uh, certainly I mean you know the the Torrance test is just one way of measuring one aspect of imagination and measuring divergent thinking so it's not a it's not a fully rounded test for how imaginative people are and to the best of my knowledge nobody has has come up with a way of measuring completely how, how, how imaginative people are but if 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 that if that's correct, and that and her hypothesis that we're seeing a decline collectively in the imagination is, is something that's happening, do you have any thoughts on on why that might be or what might be some of the processes at work there? Do
0: you, do you know, um, I I can't remember, do you know what kind of populations she was looking at? Was It
1: It was big. It was about 22,000 people a year or something. I think she was the biggest data set in the U.S.,
0: was it just uh, Americans?
1: She so that paper was just Americans, but she's now working on something looking at similar data from thirty different countries, and she says because I I wrote I wrote to her and said, "Well, is that is that just the US?" And she said, "Actually, we're doing it for thirty other countries, and actually, if anything, the picture is worse in other places than it is
0: in the US." Okay, I I could I could speculate a couple things. I mean, that, the the first thing that pops mind. Obviously, is ed- education how we think about it, the educational system, how we train children. Um, and uh, I, I don't know about 1990 in particular, but definitely, you know, in 90, starting in 99, when we became test crazed, that would be a very obvious culprit.
1: Hmm.
0: So, one thing about the Torrance tests is most of score. How many ideas you
1: can come up with? Sorry, sorry, I, um, I lost you there. The, the, it broke up. Oh, I'm sorry. You just you said um, one of the things about the Torrance test is, and then you and then you disappeared.
0: Okay, so, so one of the one of one thing to think about with the Torrance test and pretty much all tests, these standardized tests of creativity that we use, is that one of the major components that determines your the outcome on the test is this divergent thinking idea. This. How many ideas can you come up with? So um, this is I think kind of fairly detrimentally become one of the like the, the working definitions we have in psychology research of creativity is how much. And not really focusing on quality so much and just using the idea like how many ideas you can think of as a stand in for how creative someone is. And Torrance test is better because it does get into other dimensions as well, but still some of the major dimensions determining the score are, you know, fluency, like how, when you're doing, when you're doing these drawings, how many components are there in the drawing, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, for instance, if we, if we're, there were changes, you know, educational trends starting in the nineties and continuing to now that we're teaching people to, or that were leading people to try to converge more than diverge, you know, what's the one right answer versus what are lots of possible answers, then that could definitely lead to these changes we've been seeing in the tests. Um, even if that were the case, though, I'd like, is that really a problem? Obviously, we, we want people to be able to think of lots of possibilities, but if it's you know, just for instance, people who have been brought up in an educational system where they've been taking standardized tests all the time, and they're trying to figure out which of the four bubbles is the right one to fill in, then, then that could just be a you know a habit they've developed that carries over to these tests. I don't know exactly. Um, um, another idea that maybe would be related to this is, you know, we're definitely much less idle than we have were in the past. Uh, one of you know I guess we we lament all the time how over scheduled kids are they mm. go from soccer practice to band practice to art class to blah 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 blah, blah trying to fill up the resume for college or whatever uh, and so if somebody is just constantly buzzing you know li- like busy not really just stopping and daydreaming and throwing rocks and creeks or whatever then that's, again, it's a, it's a habit they're not going to have developed and they're not going to be able to use as well. And this idleness or like giving up control to ideas that, you know, the, to this default mode network, maybe, if you will, um, letting those ideas come in, exploring possibilities. Those are things that I think often come out of boredom. And if, we're, if you're never bored, you're never really letting those kinds of processes happen. So that would be another thing and so,
1: so if, if you are if, if somebody is is less imaginative their imagination is less strong and less active is that because the the um, the kind of the, the, the when that when the mental workspace fires it's including less places or that it's joining them all up less. Vigorously, I don't have all the terminology (laughs) like it it, it all fires But it fires to less places or it fires less strongly to all those different places
0: Um, I think it would be basically everything (laughs) To give you a terrible answer. So for instance, I you know This is where we're really getting at how imagination is this very very complex process that we're distilling to a single word and it's really thousands of parts that come together. Um, so, for instance, if you if you can uh, v- imagine visual experiences more or less vividly, then that's going to play a role. Somebody who can have very vivid mental images of things is going to probably be have an easier time recombining things than somebody who really struggles to form a, a visual image. Or on the flip side, I mean, there's actually there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that people tend to kind of go to one end or another of being very visual people. Uh, and I, I consider myself one of those, like when I, when I think, I tend to think a lot in terms of visual representations. And so it's very easy for me to do the kinds of tasks that I ask subjects to do where, you know, here's this weird random shape, what would it look like if it was rotated 90 degrees. And, um, some people have a really hard time doing that kind of stuff, though. Uh, they're very smart people, but they're just terrible at mentally manipulating images. But, you know, if you have them think about other things, like more um, more verbal kinds of verbal, logical kinds of representations, they're really good at that. So even even trying to talk about the mental workspace as as or like the the mental workspace network as one static network of areas in the brain is probably not true or probably not accurate because different people will have different connections or different parts of it be more active than others. So when I'm doing, when I'm trying to do, you know, when I'm trying to mentally imagine things, for some people like me that might involve mental visual images, and that's the way that I think about it. But for other people it might involve much more of the language areas of the brain exercising the, that language network in a, in a more mental way. Um, and that might lead to strengths for some people versus others and vice versa, depending on what kinds of tasks you're trying to do or whether you're a v- verbal person that's being forced to try to do something visual or vice versa. Um, so given that, that this, these networks involved are these complex information processing systems You know, there's any number of ways where they can differ or fail or become strengthened or become atrophied.
1: And one of the questions I've asked everybody that that I've interviewed has been, if if you had been elected last year (laughs) as the president on a platform of Make America Imaginative Again, if you had thought actually one of the most important things we need is to have young people have a society that really cherishes the imagination and education system where people come out really fired up and passionate. What might be some of the things you would do in your first hundred days in office?
0: First hundred days. Well, I think the real solutions are things that are more like 20 year solutions. So you can start in a hundred days, I guess, but yeah, it's never really. Really, definitely, yeah, it definitely won't solve them in hundred days. But yeah, it's definitely, to me, it just all comes down to how we choose to educate people. Um, The things that I think we would need to build toward are at least, you know, I'm I'm coming at this all from a perspective on the U.S. education system. So one thing is that we don't don't view a teacher as a profession, like in the same way that we do as a a medical doctor or a lawyer. So I would say we need the equivalent training and um,
1: uh,
0: residencies and professional degrees for teachers that we would – have with with anything else that's as important as a profession as teaching is and the training I would focus on is I mean yeah obviously there's like we we shouldn't be focused on tests in the way that we are Uh, if you teach tests and you teach to the kind of competencies a child should achieve by fifth grade that kind of thing you're going to be ignoring all the things that are hard to measure for one thing like imagination, creativity, curiosity. How do you, how do you evaluate whether a kid is curious? I don't know. Uh, So one of the, you know, I think one of the changes that that I want to see is that we become, I guess uh, like we trust more that the outcomes that we want will come rather than need to see them happen. Because if you, need to see a result then you'll only focus on the things that you can see and for a lot of what education really does it's very hard to measure it in any reliable way so if you want to create you know if your goal is to create a society of people that are civically engaged that are curious that are creative compassionate that's all stuff that you have to just kind of set up a system to do that and hope that you know the The outcome outcome that you measure will be the society you create, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. So that it frees you to focus on those things and not focus on math skills, reading skills, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's all—I mean, it's all like the opposite of concrete. (laughs) So how how would I actually like in the first hundred days? What do you do? I don't know. I mean, maybe one concrete thing you could do is try to reorganize the teacher training system to make it more professionally aligned.
1: um, like they have in Finland, where, yeah. where people, teachers are basically trained to master's level, and then there's no testing in schools of teachers. They are just they they are then just allowed. They're just empowered to teach, and uh, they have the lowest they have the most amount of play and the shortest school hours of any country in Europe, and they constantly gain the best results and the brightest yeah. students. Maybe yeah, that would be the, yeah, yeah
0: the, the, first the first thing you could do is just copy Scandinavia.
1: <laughs> yes, in many, many different things. Um, <laughs> well, so just the last, the last thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, um, uh, actually, well, there was two, well, well, one very, very quick thing. So you mentioned at the beginning about humans and animals. Do animals, are we the only species that has an imagination? Are there imaginative, do animals imagine?
0: Uh, well this is also an area where there's a lot of debate and people very strongly wedded to different camps um, so my I mean I have a, a view from looking at the data and uh, I've done some research with animals that they're it, especially with I've done some research with chimpanzees so the chimpanzees also often come up because they're our know, closest living relative and if, if they're a good um, a good species to look at if we're really trying to figure out what is the core of the difference. Where did humans start to diverge from our animal uh, relatives? Uh, and it seems pretty clear to me that there are some very qualitative differences to get right at this idea of imagination. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely not the – like there's definitely a lot of people who would say the opposite, basically, that, that we're all – on a continuum, basically, and what distinguishes humans is that are these quantitative differences, like maybe a a bigger working memory or, I mean, language is something that's hard to get away from because we clearly have very developed language and chimpanzees and other animals don't have highly developed language. But uh, I think there's, so the view that I've come to looking at the data and research is that there's, there's a very important difference uh, that gets right at the, the mental workspace, basically. Uh, and I think maybe where part of where it's coming from is that something that very clearly distinguishes humans from other animals is the amount of control that we can exert over our behavior. Uh, and the way that's often talked about is that, you know, we have this much larger frontal lobe that is for inhibiting these behaviors that, you know, these – sexual or emotional behaviors that we would want to engage in, but we don't because we can repress that. And but the flip side of it is that we can also make ourselves do things that we wouldn't want to do or that we can that that aren't prepotent, that don't just come naturally. So if you know, I can really force myself to struggle to think about what is what is the thing that I would change about the school system now that that doesn't exist. Um and I don't get distracted. Right? I, can, I can make myself focus on that for an extended period of time. So my my suspicion is that all these differences, one of the main things these differences are coming from is this this um, control differences we have. So one of the, besides this enlarged frontal lobe, one of the other things that we see is a big difference between animals and other primates is much stronger connections between the uh like dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and parietal areas, this frontal parietal network that people talk about. Uh, and that's heavily in, involved in kind of direction of thought, I guess you might describe it as. Uh, so executive control over thought. Uh, and, and mental workspace would be one of these things of controlling one's own thoughts. So, Anyway, I'm getting a little bit rambly, I think. But um, this question of, you know, do other animals have imaginations? A- another way to phrase it might be is, like, e- if even if they have, in theory, or you know, even if they have that machinery there to do these, you know, recombinations of mental representations or memories or things like that, another big question would be, what is their ability to use that that system that's there to direct it and to develop it, and that's where I think uh, an important. That's where it might be, you know, productive to, to have discussions in, in that areas. So, when I was in, uh, I did some research with chimpanzees in Japan a while ago, trying to trying to do a study to determine whether they could do mental rotation. This is one of the paradigms that has been most extensively used to try to get at these questions is uh the mental rotation paradigm so it's in general the idea is that you have the subject try to you know you show the subject a visual stimulus they have to perform some mental rotation of it and then you test whether they've done that mental rotation correctly or not so this has been done you know first in humans but in several species now, you know, people have tried to do mental rotation studies with chimpanzees and pigeons and um, maybe even sea lions or something. There's some strange species people have looked at and there's spotty evidence one way or the other. You know, Sometimes they can do these tasks, sometimes they can't, but it's it's very difficult to come to a conclusion about because all we really have is their behavior and we have to try to infer from that what the mental processes behind that are. Um, so just to give you one example, you know these original mental rotation studies. The reason they were so interesting was there was a debate, at, uh, a vigorous debate at the time of whether or not we really do have these mental images in in the brain, or whether they're some other format of representation of information that we just fool ourselves into thinking or mental images. And so the cool finding from this original mental rotation study. Was that um, so? Here's what they did: they had a they had a, a a visual stimulus, some weird cube shape, and they had another version of these. And your job as a subject was to decide whether or not with, this was the same 3D cube shape, uh, or whether you know one just rotated into the other, or whether one was had some kind of a flip in it that made them actually different objects. Um, so as a subject, if you're Doing, if, you know, as it, what you're having to do then is mentally align these two and see if they match up. And what they found was that a subject's response time, you know, deciding and responding yes or no, uh, correlated positively with the, um, the angle between the two objects. So the, the farther they were away from each other in angle space, the longer it took you to respond. And it was a very tight correlation. And that was a very strong behavioral indication that you actually were engaging in some kind of a simulation of rotating this one object into the other because a rotation takes time and it's going to take longer if it's a longer rotation that you have to make. Wow,
1: okay. And, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you was I just wanted to sort of uh, suggest a hypothesis and see what you think of it. Sure. Which is, which is that... The climate change as an issue is something where the further you get into it, the more terrifying it, it, its implications become, and we see the the fires. I don't know how far you are from the fires that are going on in California at the moment, uh, yeah. but you know the, the 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 further we get into it, the more uh, and the more pronounced it becomes, and the more clear it becomes, and more the implications start to sink in. Uh, what should be happening? Is that, is that as we get further into it, we should be becoming more and more imaginative of ideas of things that we can do and possibilities and other ways that we can deal with it. But it feels like actually the further we get into it, the more that stuff sort of shuts down. <laughs> and I wondered whether, so what I've been looking at is the idea that, particularly when I was focusing you know, with, with the hippocampus, that, that idea that when you are in fear, when you are in trauma, and the hippocampus is, uh, is kind of compromised and shrinks and that we become less able to look to the future, our imagination is less strong under those kind of circumstances. So so the, the, the further we get into something like climate change, the less imaginative we become because of that sort of set of circumstances. Does that sound like something that could be plausible to you? Yeah, I think
0: it could be. Uh, but I think it it'd be highly dependent on how a person receives the information about climate change. You know, if you, if you receive this information as we're doomed a hundred years from now, the seas are going to rise, we're all going to die. You know, it's, it's because of big businesses that are pumping pollutants into the air and all that kind of stuff. It's like, it doesn't like if that's, if that's presented to me in that way, I don't really see what my role in that is. Yeah. You know, what do I do? And I could definitely see, Kind of more of a, like a survival behavior in that case of shutting off and not thinking about it and focusing on uh, focusing on what's in front of me rather than this this doom that's coming in the future that i have no control over. But if it's presented as yeah this is a problem to solve and I view myself as somebody who can solve problems then yeah my imagination kicks off.